Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we, we come to you today oh, with hearts, Father, full of praise and worship to you for all that you have done and you continue to do and the benefits that you have, have given us in your death and in your resurrection. Oh God, we thank you that you are a God that reveals yourself to your people. You speak to us through your word and we pray that today that you would do exactly that as we open your word, that you would give us ears to hear. Father, let us, let our, let our ears not be stopped up. Let our hearts not be cold towards you. But we pray for the Holy Spirit of God to so enlighten our minds and work in a way, God, that you would cause our desires to be fixed firmly upon you, to obey you, Lord, to live the life that you have given us through your death and resurrection. We thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen. So what is one thing that all Christians have in common? Well, I would suggest to you, it is faith. Faith is God's foundational gift that he gives to all his children. It is the common characteristic that all Christians have. And this faith is, is like a, a storyline through the length of the experience of the Christian life. It's not that we just have, we come to faith in Jesus Christ when we are converted and that's where we exercise faith. But once we become a Christian, all throughout our lives, even to the day that we die, we exercise faith in Jesus Christ. So everyone who professes faith in Christ wants to think that they have that true saving faith. No one wants to think that they struggle in their faith or worse yet, that the faith that they profess or that they say that they have may not be true saving faith. Especially since the Christian's ultimate security in that day of judgment when they stand before Jesus Christ where everyone will be judged, the only hope that a Christian has is not their own good works or their own righteousness, but only the works of Jesus Christ and that they have faith in Him. And how terrible it would be to stand before Jesus Christ and think that you have faith and hear those words that Jesus spoke when He was here on earth to, to those. He said, there will be those who will stand before Him and they'll say, Jesus, see what we did for you? And Jesus says, I never knew you because they did not truly have believing faith. Now, what makes faith real? You know, can we be sure that our faith is a saving faith. You know, faith is one of those words uh, in the church today can be a little bit vague. And, and many people say, well, I'm a believer. And you say, really? Well, why is that? And you say, well, I have faith because I believe that I have faith. You know, and so I, I know that, that, that I'm good. You know, in a sense, that's sort of sanctified wishful thinking at, at best. But, but James, I, I just appreciate him so much as a pastor. From, as one pastor to another, I just appreciate how practical he is and how concerned he is for his congregation that that doesn't suffice for him. He what, wants his people to understand what true saving faith looks like as they prepare on that day to stand before Christ. And so this, the sort of the function of these verses that we're looking at today is, is this whole thing of James helping his congregation to understand what true saving faith looks like. And he uses 
four illustrations uh, to define what faith is. And the four illustrations that I'm referring to are the, the brothers and sisters in need. Um, it is the, the person, the, the, the demons who believe but are troubled. It is Abraham, who's described as a friend of God, and it's Rahab who welcomed the spies. And what I want you to see as we look at these four illustrations is, is that the first two talk about what faith is not. You'll notice that uh, James, when he uh, gives each one of these illustrations, after he gives the illustration, he actually gives a summary statement of what he wants you to get out of that illustration. So if you look at verses 17 and 20 and 24 and 26, you see uh, the, the summary statement. So the first two talk about what faith is not, so obviously this, the second two talk about what faith is. But there's also another uh, dynamic that I want you to see is, is that faith will express itself both on a horizontal level in terms of our relationship with one another, but true saving faith will also express itself in a vertical way in our relationship with God. And, and that's what we see uh, in the first illustration and the third illustration that it talks about that relationship that we have horizontally. And of course, the first illustration tells us what that faith, what, or the last illustration tells us what that faith ought to look like. And so the middle two uh, illustrations tell what that vertical relationship with God looks like. So if that's not confusing enough, we'll just move on and I think it'll be much more clear, okay? So, uh, so James sets the scene for his definition on saving faith as we look at verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, what James is going to talk about in these uh, opening verses is he's going to describe what useless faith is. Okay, And James is speaking about a person who claims to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's it's uh, unsupported by any concrete evidence in his life. And th the reason I say that is because if you look at James' words very carefully, he doesn't say that though someone has faith, right? Look at the text. He says, but though someone says he has faith. So this is someone that he's, uh, who would claim to be a Christian, but really is not. Now, the answer that James is anticipating from verse 14 is no. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? No. It, it can't faith. It cannot save him. Uh, so James is not... Uh, but I want us to un also understand that James is not asking this question because he's like trying to propose a different way of salvation than faith alone in Jesus Christ. Some people want to pit the Apostle Paul and James against each other and say that they're really saying two different things. I think Kent Hughes's comment on this passage is really helpful at this point because uh, he says that Paul's teaching about faith and works focuses on the time before conversion, before we become believers in Jesus Christ. And there were those and in, in, uh, that Paul was talking to who believed that through their works, through their efforts, that they could somehow earn salvation. That if they were just good enough, you know, in their life, that they would earn God's approval. And Paul says, heaven forbid, no, 
That is not the case. You are only justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But James, his focus is not on that time before conversion, but he's, his focus is after conversion. And if you look at the book of James, and for those of you that are visiting with us today, I'm sorry you don't have this advantage, but for those that, that have been here, you notice as we've gone through these first couple of chapters that for the most part, James has been talking about the Christian life. In chapter 1, verse 18, he makes reference to how we were brought to faith in Christ through the word of truth. But other than that, everything else he's been talking about, about those who are Christians. And so he's really dealing with the role of faith and works after a person becomes a believer. So we do not have a works faith, but we do have a faith that works. So you see James understands this idea of faith. Faith alone in Jesus Christ in the same way that every other Bible believer does. You know, saving faith results in a distinctive life. Saving faith results in a distinctive life. It is a life that you can look at and say, that's a Christian life. It's a life where a person is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5. You see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on in that person's life. And so James is just summarizing this distinctive kind of life that flows from saving faith with this word works. He packs into that one little word a life that's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So James is not contrasting faith and works or exalting one over the other, but he wants us to see the difference between a person who merely professes faith in Christ and the person who has true saving faith in Jesus Christ is, that, is faith with works, a faith that produces a distinctive Christian life. And he does so, James does this uh, by uh, explaining this, but keeping the two distinct realities in their proper balance as he talks about faith and works. Now, as we talk about a useless faith, uh, I want us to see that a useless faith is a verbal profession that doesn't go beyond words. In other words, it's, it's someone who says that they are a believer, but that's as far as it goes. It's, uh, it just is a matter of words. And we see two examples of this. First of all, in regards to loving others in verses 15 through 16. Here again, guys, this is that horizontal level. This is that, uh, that useless faith being expressed in a horizontal relationship with other people. And he says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So the person who uh, says that they are a Christian and, and sees another Christian in need and says, go in peace. You know, that's sort of the old uh, Hebrew word for shalom. Shalom, may God's peace be upon you, which is a very appropriate Hebrew uh, farewell. But, but such a comment does not exhibit saving faith. Instead, the person of faith, you know, the person who says that they have faith, just sort of simply wants to get rid of these people. You know, that, that they're here, they have this need, makes them feel uncomfortable, and they just sort of want to get them out of their sight. And so instead of giving them clothes and food to satisfy them, they just sort of use a religious cliche, you know, be warm and be filled. And so they sort of speak 
like they're people of grace. They sort of speak words of grace, but they fail to minister the grace to those people that are in need. And so James says in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I want us to understand here, brothers and sisters, that James is not speaking about a half faith and he's not speaking about sort of a sort of faith or a limited faith, but he's talking about a dead faith. This is a faith that is useless because it is pious talk without the reality of that, that Christian life. And, you know, when Christ came, he didn't come merely to preach. He didn't stand up and just give these great platitudes and, and stuff. But, but Christ, he served and he healed and he helped and he died. He, and he showed us what that Christian faith looks like. And as, as long as we go on in our business as, bro, as Christians and pass on the other side of the road and to, to keep from getting our hands dirty, a lot like the priest did and the Levite in the parable of the good Samaritan, you know, who has useless faith, our faith will be no better. Now, I know yesterday, the, the men, we sort of, you know, we like to chase rabbits. And as the men were meeting, we were chasing rabbits. And we eventually got talking about, uh, you know, people who are asked for money alongside the road or when you're in a parking lot coming out of Dillon's or whatever, and they're asking for money. And so we're sort of talking about what we do. And, and you know, it may be very easy for us as, as we look at this passage to think about that and to judge our faith and to see what our life looks like in terms of how we do in terms of giving money. But let me suggest to you that that showing that kind of compassion to others isn't just in terms of giving money to those who are in need. It might be husbands, you loving your wife. You know, you setting aside the time from your work to show your wife that she is important and cherishing her and loving her. Wives, it, it may be, you know, telling your husband how special he is and spending time with him. It might be you have a roommate and it might be loving that roommate or it may be the, your neighbor who you share a property line with that sometimes you don't always get along with one another. But it may be loving that person. Or it may be the coworker that just drives you nuts. But you see that they have a need and you set aside your own desires that you might show them. A useless faith is a verbal profession that doesn't go beyond words. But James doesn't just stop there with that sense of that horizontal. He also goes on with the vertical as well. And he talks about it in regards to orthodoxy. You know, we, we see this in verses 18 through 20. Now, as you look at verse 18, you come to it. Uh, it's, it's sort of a challenging verse. As a matter of fact, one commentator said, and after reading pages and pages and pages, I sort of agree with him. It might be one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to, to wrestle with. And, and part of that is, is because in the ancient Greek manuscripts, there wasn't punctuation. So, you know, where does the quote end? You know, you, well, there's a quote there in verse 18, you know, that, that t talks about, you know, how... Um, you are, to, you know, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You know, does it stop there after that first part? Is the rest of verse 18 and 19 part of that quote? You know, and then just no matter how you translate this verse, there's always, uh, there's still some difficulties, um, some factors that arise. But, but I would suggest to you that the ESV, the English Standard Version, does a good job in terms of putting the quote in the right place. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But there's, there's different views 
about this and what's going on here when James comes to verse 18. Some people believe that James is citing an ally, someone who agrees with him, and that he wants them to, to help him sort of make his point. And so what, what's meant by this verse is, you know, you, the false believer, say that you have faith. Well, I have works. So that's the point that he's, he's trying to get across. But I think that uh, probably what James is doing is, is he's really citing somebody who objects with him, somebody who disagrees with him. And he's trying to cast doubt on James' faith. And so the objector is, is saying this. He goes, well, one person has faith and another has works. Or there is faith on one hand and there's works on the other. Or it's as if he's trying to say, well, one chooses faith and another chooses action. You know, the point that the objector is making is, is that faith and works are separate entities, maybe even separate gifts. So then how can James demand that all Christians possess both faith and works. And that's why he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, James addresses that in verses, the rest of verse 18 and 19. He said, well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. But then James goes on and likens the faith of this objector to that of a demon. Uh, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, James is most likely referring to the Shema. Uh, it's not 100% certain, but it looks like that is the case, that he's referring to the Shema, which is a daily prayer that a Jewish and Orthodox Jew would pray. Shema Yisrael Adonai Adonehu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It would be like us as churchgoers today, loudly proclaiming our belief in the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, any good Christian would do that. And likewise, any great Jew would proclaim that the Lord is one. Well, the problem is not in the confession itself, but from the implication that it doesn't go beyond just a verbal proclamation. So what the person says this? It really doesn't mean anything. You know, uh, it doesn't touch the heart and the life of the person who's saying this. Well, one commentator, I like how they put it. They said, you know, it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. Right? You know, we can have all the theology we want, but unless it possesses us and we see that lived out through our hands and through our feet, it really means nothing. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I think that probably demons are amongst the most orthodox theologians. I mean, if you really think about that. I mean, they see God for who he is and all the things that they believe about God, they do so wholeheartedly. So much so that they are compelled to respond to the truth of who God is as he is. But their response is that of shuddering. It's, it's not of that of having peace with God. It's not in loving God or confessing who he is. It is in them shuddering. And brothers and sisters, if, if demons might hold such a faith and yet remain in hell, is it not possible that we might hold such faith? And find ourselves in the gates of hell as well. You may or 
you may or may not consider yourself a great theologian, but I would suggest to you you're a better theologian than what you realize. I mean, many of you can tell me the stories. Even you kids can tell me the stories from the Bible. You can quote to me commands. You can quote Bible verses, you know, and so much more. But is that the extent of our faith? Do those things you know work themselves out in your lives in such a way that is distinctively Christian? Or is it just something that we know in our heads and it doesn't go any farther? Oh, brothers and sisters, if demons hold such a faith and remain in hell, how then can we be sure that ours is a faith that is true and that we have peace with God as well? Well, I would suggest to you that there has to be a way that we can know that. Because James says in verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. And so he does. He, he shares with us what true faith looks like. And we see that in verses 21 through 26. So if we've talked about a useless faith, now James talks about a true saving faith. And it's interesting the examples that he uses. He uses a patriarch and a prostitute. He uses a Jew and a Gentile. He uses a godly man and a, and a godless woman. And so first of all, we see that he talks about Abraham. Now here again, we're talking about true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking about that vertical relationship. He's talking about that Godward relationship, what faith looks like in relationship to our God. And so James shows us that Abraham's uh, faith was accompanied by works. Look at verse 21. Was not Abram our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, James expects a, a positive response to this question. Um, so Abraham um, was a man of great faith. I mean, it, it, James couldn't have used a better example. I mean, to Jews and Gentiles alike, everyone sees Abraham as a man of great faith. No one questions Abraham's faith. But James says that he's justified by works. Now, this would have been like fingers on a chalkboard to a Jew. Seriously? He was justified by works? I mean, every Bible student knows that sinners are justified or declared guiltless or righteous before God by faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that Abraham was justified by faith. We see that in Genesis 15:6. We see it in Romans 4, 20 and 22. But James says that Abraham was justified by works. So to prove this point, James refers to the time that, that God commanded Abraham to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. And, and you know the story. That God promised Abraham that, that he would give him a son and that he would make him into a great nation. And then finally, God gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. He had another son, but God said, no, it's through Isaac that I'm going to fulfill this promise. But then suddenly, Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac. Obviously, it was a test of his faith, and we know that Abraham passed that test. But it was interesting. Think about this. You know, uh, Abraham was given two what seemed to be contradictory words. One word from the Lord was that Isaac had to live in order for that promise to be fulfilled, that he would have uh, uh, many descendants. But then the other word that he got from the Lord was, Isaac needs to die. Now, it's interesting, instead of uh, Abraham believing one word or the other word, what he did was he believed both. 
He believed everything that God had said. And we even read in Hebrews where Abraham thought that God would even raise Isaac from the dead if he needed to in order to fulfill uh, both those words. But Abraham did not struggle. Now, when it comes to this word of justified, I think sometimes we can... We can get tripped off on that. You know, we know that Paul uses the word justified to mean that Abraham was declared righteous by faith. We, we know that. But when James uses the word justified, he's really focusing on the productive nature of justifying grace. What, what Abraham did in being willing to sacrifice his son was evidence of that new life that Abraham had in Christ. We see that new life clear back in Genesis 15, but we see the evidence of that new life in Genesis 22. So James shows that Abraham's faith was real by his works of obedience. But then we go on just quickly to look at Rahab in verse 25. And it says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them uh, out by another way. Now we know the story of Rahab. She, she was a prostitute uh, in the city and the Israelites were coming to destroy the city. And uh, she feared the Lord even before the Israelites came. You know, it says that their reputation basically preceded them. And she believed in, in the Lord. So she had a legitimate claim in terms of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in Joshua chapter 2, if, you're, if you want to read there, verses 18 and, and following. But she also, in, in that, recognized her obligation to meet the needs of, of God's people when the spies came. And so she, was, she, she did that. Um, but unlike the response we saw in verses 15 and 16 of that dead faith when uh, the needs of these Christians were uh, raised before the quote-unquote believing person, Rahab's sort of faith, by contrast, sees all of life as God's provision. Everything came from the Lord because her heart had been changed. She had faith in the Lord and she knew who he was and trusted in him. And so she saw that her house and her resources her in, uh, ingenuity, her personal safety, all of this was the Lord's, that she was his servant and she was to do his will. And so that was a living faith. And then finally, James closes in verse 26 and he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In other words, in the same way that the body and the spirit are united and therefore there is life, in the same way, there is a unity of faith and works that results in true saving faith. This doesn't mean that if, if you're here today and you look at your life and you say, you know, Pastor Rick, I don't see those works. Actually, I can sort of relate to those people who hear the needs of other believers and I'm sort of self-consumed. I don't really see myself reaching out for the needs of others. I sort of think of myself more than anything. Well, if that's the case, it's not that all you need is more works. You just need to get out there and try harder. I hope if you haven't heard anything else, that what you have heard is that these works only come from a genuine work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that gives us new life in Jesus Christ. And so as we, as we think about uh, Abraham and, and Rahab, what was the works of faith that they had? 
Well, for Abraham, he held nothing back from the Lord. He said, God, it's all yours. It is all yours. I don't care what you want. I will do whatever. I will obey your word. I don't care what the consequences are. You know, that relationship with the Lord was number one. And that's what true saving faith calls us to. Is that where you are in your life? Is your life one where you say, God, I don't care what you call me to. I don't know how difficult it is or what it's going to cost me. I will do what you say. Likewise, Rahab's was sort of the same attitude, only it was expressed horizontally. It was an attitude that says, you know, I'm here and I will meet the needs of those that are around me. Uh, It doesn't matter what it costs. You see, saving faith has that aspect of dying to self so that we might love other people. You know, I was thinking about this. um, And I was thinking about what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's a verse we quote all the time. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that? You know, when Christ does a work in a person's heart, they are totally new. He doesn't just make us better. He makes us different. He gives us a heart that's been changed, a faith that is solid, a faith where we die to self, where we love our God more than anything else, where we express that love to other people. I think sometimes, you know, as we we think about faith in the church, and and I talk to to many people who call themselves Christians, and and I, I can't see their hearts. I don't know. You know, I can only be a fruit inspector. You know, but oftentimes it's like we're like, well, yeah, you know, I, I think they're a Christian. You know, I, I, I sort of see this and, and maybe kind of sort of see this. But what I want us to see, brothers and sisters, is when Jesus Christ changes us, he changes us. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't have struggles. It doesn't mean that, that you know, sometimes our faith can be weaker than other times. But really what this is about is how great and awesome our God is. And how assured that we can be that when he works in our hearts, it's a real thing. It is a true thing. And and I'm excited and I cannot wait to see what the Lord does, not only in your lives individually as you walk with him, but even as we walk together as a church body and as we have the opportunity to share Christ with the neighborhoods and the community in which we live. Amen? Our God is good. Let's bow our heads, if we could, for a time of silent meditation upon the Word of God this morning. Lord Jesus, we we thank you so much. We thank you for your Word that is spoken this morning, and we pray you bring these things to our minds and our hearts. Lord, we, we think about your comment while here on earth that it was your food, it was your nourishment to do the will of your Father. Oh God, may that be our heart's desire as well. May you cause us to grow stronger 
in our faith, even through trials and difficulties in all the ways of our lives, that we might love our Father in the same way that you loved him. Jesus, we also know that you said that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. We pray in the same way that we might serve those around us as well. Even laying down our own lives and our own desires and our own wishes, God, that we may do um, what is loving towards other people. Even people, God, that don't appreciate it, people that maybe even might scorn us. May we pray for those that persecute us and love those, God, who, who put us down. But we pray, O oh Lord, that we would walk in the union that we have in Jesus Christ, that we would walk in, in saving faith. And may the world know that, and may they see that. And God, may you bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ. Please, please, we pray, uh, not just for our sake as a church, but really more that your name would be glorified and you would be exalted. We thank you, O God, and pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.